Every single business can start the process of turning a customer into a fan. In my mind, if you engage with customers more frequently and you involve them more and you think about that and you put customer service at the heart of your thinking when you communicate with them, then you're going to start to build a return on involvement. And we are back for Series 3 of Transformation Stories from the award-winning Beltec Café. This series, we're talking innovation, commerce, emotive marketing, and career changes. We'll also dip into trends in fintech, digital health, retail, mobility, manufacturing, and speak to CEOs, CDOs, SMEs, and lots of other acronyms too. As always, you can expect gloriously unscripted discussions that shed an open and transparent light on the ebb and flow of our digital world. I'm Tizzy Philp, and welcome to the podcast. When I spoke to today's guest in preparation for this interview, I asked him what retail brands could do to become recession-proof. Did he believe that customer-centric transformations were likely to suffer in a recession economy? And if so, how could they protect their customer base in the face of shrinking budgets? His response was to immediately reframe my question. This isn't about how brands can be recession-proof, he said. It's about how brands can show up for their customers in times of great need. What are the things that you need to prioritize to put them first, to make sure they know that you are thinking about them and that you're doing what you can to make their experience better? So I'm delighted to be joined by Martin Newman, perhaps better known as the consumer champion, to talk more. So Martin, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tizzy. Good morning and thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Oh, it's exciting to have you here. You are quite the illustrious keynoter and, and almost famous name now, I think, growing in, in prominence across the, across the UK, I, certainly, I, I, and I further afield. I'm a Z-lister up my way. You know, I, live in, <laughs> I live in a part Not, of London where I'm, I'm surrounded by footballers and pop stars. So, uh, <laughs> well, maybe this podcast will will uh, help help you out there, move you from a Z-list to A-list. We'll, we'll <laughs> Let's uh, kick off then with more of an introduction into you and your background. What's behind your position as this consumer champion? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been I've been working for forty years, and my career I, I basically spent pretty much split down the middle between being a retailer or being a service provider into the retail industry. But my passion and my focus has always been around customer, customer experience, customer centricity. Um, I started my career on the shop floor. My father's retail optical practices in Glasgow, and my dad was just a fantastic, um, just fantastic at engaging with customers or with patients, as they were called. So you would go in to get your eyes tested, and you'd walk out with two pairs of glasses and a pair of sunglasses. Um, never have you seen so many pairs of sunglasses walking around <laughs> Paisley or Glasgow in the west of Scotland before. And for those of you that go to Glasgow, you know you probably don't need sunglasses too often but my dad was just brilliant at selling and engaging with patients and customers and I guess that's where my passion for all things customer centric and customer experience probably started. I've had the privilege of working with some amazing brands. I moved down to London 20 years ago to run online for Harrods. I then subsequently became Burberry's first head of e-commerce in Europe. I ran online and multi-channel for Ted Baker and also for a company called Pentland Brands who are a multi-brand owner. After that, I launched uh, I launched and built a successful consulting business called Practicology, 
uh, with the emphasis on the practical experience, which I grew over nine years, and we sold to an American company called Pattern uh, about four years ago now. Um, and these days, I write books on the subject of customer experience. I also write them in multiple languages. So very talented man, of course. Actually, this one came in the book the other day. I haven't yet worked out what, what language that actually is. You're going to check it for typos. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and in Mandarin. So there you go. I do board advisory work and I also created a mini MBA in the subject of customer centricity. So there's a bit about my background, but also my passion around all things consumer related. Okay, so definitely highly qualified to have this conversation with us today. And I mentioned in the introduction to this chat, the repositioning of how we will see brands respond or adapt to changing economic conditions and this downturn that we're seeing at the moment. You've talked about a shift from protecting the brand to protecting the customer, incredibly important. But how can brands realize that realistically in the face of mounting financial pressures, do you think? Sure. Well, I think... I think for me, it's always really important that businesses, you know, whether you're a retailer, whether you're a consumer packaged goods brand or whatever, whatever sector you're in, car dealer, financial services, doesn't matter. For me, it's always really important to focus on building customer lifetime value. And I think that never has that been more prominent than now, you know, so that might seem strange when we're talking about, you know, an economic crisis and, you know, the cost of living crisis and everything that, that, that we're facing into at the moment, but I think that makes it even more important to think longer term and think about, you know, what can you do to turn up for customers now to provide more value? You know, whether that's discounting, whether that's finding other ways of adding value or creating services that help people out at a difficult period of time. Some of it just boils down to empathy and and how you, you know, how you deliver that through effective marketing communications and through customer service. But I think it's really important and I think that customers will remember the brands that do it and the ones that don't. Um, I mean, you should always, we should always be playing the long game and consumer facing businesses don't do enough of that. We focus way too much on the cost to serve customers and not enough about how do we actually make sure people keep coming back, you know, time and time again. So I'd certainly be focused on that right now. Um, and it's never been more important and a more important time to do that. And, to be there for customers at their hour of need. And how can they do that in a better way in your experience? Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, <clears throat> you know, how, how do you, how can you offer more value? Um, so that means, you know, whether that means providing discounts, whether that means encouraging customers to give you more of their spend over the next year or over the next 18 months, but find, you know, mechanisms to reward them for that. So, I think it's about giving something back. Um, and, and of course, that's never been more important at this precise moment in time. Some of that might be about delivering services that help customers out, uh, you know, at times like this. So, I, I mean, it might be that, for example, when in the past you've charged for delivery when people, when customers make an order online, maybe you, maybe you change that and you offer delivery free. Maybe you've charged for returns in the past. Maybe you change that and you offer free returns. I think whatever it is, you've got to look at ways that you can provide more value to customers so that you can encourage them to keep coming back to you and increase, if anything, increase their frequency of doing so both in the short and the medium term. When we were having this prep discussion for this interview, we talked about that in a lot of detail, a lot of detail and you mentioned, or I mentioned in the introduction there that you really challenged my positioning of of 
how to approach this question, that it's less about protecting the brand. I think as an agency or as a company like us, we focus on the brand, of course, with a, an end, end, uh, end user in mind. But making the changes that you're suggesting requires a change in approach, a change in ways of working. It, 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 it involves structural change within those organizations. Do you think they're prepared to do that? Do you think they are able to have that long-term customer value view when they are being pinched and squeezed so much? Sure, sure. Well, listen, it's a great question because the traditional mindset of running a retail business or running a consumer-facing business tends to focus on the short term. You know, and if we look at how we're being rewarded, you know, in terms of the people that make the big decisions in our businesses, you know, often they're being rewarded by what happens in the next 12 months. And whilst there's obviously an imperative to make sure we can deliver a return to shareholder and we can we can provide, we can we can make profit and we can drive sales in the short term, we've always got to be thinking about the longer term. So I think it, part of that's a cultural answer and or, or that part of the answer is about the culture of the business and part of the answer is about who's running the business and what their mindset is and how they're how they're being incentivized to some extent as well. But I, but I think that you know what we saw over the pandemic is certainly a real ability for consumer facing businesses to pivot and pivot very quickly. Um, because they had to do that, you know, when they had to close the mm-hmm. physical environment, they obviously had to re refocus and, and repurpose people, um, you know, change how the organization worked, um, ramp up the digital side of the business, you know, as consumers moved more from the physical environment to the, the digital environment. And that meant obviously being able to handle, you know, increased levels of orders, increased customer service inquiries, et cetera, et cetera. So I think... I think consumer-facing brands have already shown their ability to do that. But there's a difference between being forced to do it and there's a difference between having a willingness. Choosing to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a a very good point. So often we'll talk about ROI, but I'm wondering beyond those discussions of the traditional ROI that is is the mainstay of, of, you know, our business, you've also been known to talk about the return on inclusion and the return of involvement. So two different types of ROI. Do you think those are considerations that are typically missing from our traditional retail KPIs? 100%. Now, I've sat on a number of boards, and so I know from my own experience, and I still do, I know from my own experience that too often, if we take diversity and inclusion, take the first part of of my new couple of new ROIs to think about, Often and too often, it's thought about as a. I think it's a tick box exercise, so it tends to be a quota-driven scenario. It's something that a board and a business knows that it needs to do, but it, but it doesn't necessarily recognise that it should be really a core part of the fabric of the business, because these things, you know, be, being diverse and being inclusive, it's not it's not just a moral imperative; it's a commercial imperative, which is why I try to encourage businesses to think about return on inclusion. Because the reality is the more diverse you are, the more effectively you you meet the needs of a broader set of customers, the more reflective you are of their needs. And, you know, if I look at a lot of boards today, they're still pale, they're still male, and they're still stale. I'm not, but they probably are. Now, when you consider that women make 70 to 80% of all consumer purchasing decisions, if the board's all pale and male, then they're not going to be doing the best job, I would suggest, respectively, in, in making the decisions that are right for those customers in, in terms of the strategy of the business, what they sell, how they sell, their service proposition, their value proposition, and so on and so forth. And, of course, the same goes for ethnicity. 
but it's broader than that. You know, there are 14 million disabled consumers in the UK. It was when we were recording this, it was Purple Tuesday the other day, um, which is celebrating the opportunity of addressing the needs of the disabled community. Now, both of my daughters have a hidden disability and, and unfortunately one of them occasionally has an overt disability where she maybe needs to spend time in a wheelchair. And so I, I know from first-hand experience how poorly all consumer-facing businesses do when it comes to really addressing the needs of that particular cohort or that particular community. And yet financially, it's an incredible opportunity. It's, it's The size of prize just within retail is, is somewhere in the region of £350 billion. Pounds. It's an enormous opportunity. It's a big percentage of the, of the population. And there are very few businesses, I think, that really recognise that or recognise what the value of getting after that community uh, looks like, which is why I'm encouraging businesses to think of it, not only in terms of diversity and inclusion, but what about return on inclusion? Because if we include those customers more effectively, and if we have businesses that, that more, more effectively reflect the customers that we're actually engaging with and selling to, of course, we will do a better job of doing that. I saw a really the nice example. Bar. Sorry, Sorry, just to say, Matt, I saw a really nice example this week, which you've probably already seen as well. And this is UK specific. So apologies for our listeners who aren't listening from the UK, but the Gymshark opening in Regent Street. So Gymshark is a sportswear brand yeah. that was started uh, online. I think he was he was very young. He was a young teenager, started selling sportswear on uh, online. And it's grown into this huge, incredible brand. And yeah. even their mannequins, the whole store is shut. Is, is set up to uh, to support and be much more inclusive. The mannequins are representative of full society, including people in wheelchairs. You know, it's brilliant. It's amazing. And it's made it a huge storm. They're a great example of a company that is making a difference when it comes to this. But why do you think so many others aren't? What's what's stopping them? Well, the Gymshark example, I've seen that. It's a fantastic, you know, having, you know, having um, mannequins and wheelchairs and being more representative of that broader set of communities is, is just brilliant, and I celebrate them for, for doing that. Again, I think, well, I think part of it is actually lack of diversity within the business. You know, if you had somebody with a disability sitting around your board table or in your executive leadership team, then you've got somebody that can hold you to account and can actually educate the rest of the board and educate the decision-making and the thinking and influence the decision-making and thinking around this and help the business to understand what the opportunity is. But if you don't have that, then you don't have people that understand, you know, again, it's, that's my whole point about being diverse and inclusive within the, within the organization, as well as in relation to the customers that you're trying to serve. Because if you don't have those representations sitting around the decision-making tables within the business, then you're not going to make the right decisions. Now, whether Gymshark has, for example, somebody with a disability on their board or in their senior management team or not, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that they are such a forward-thinking brand and they've been smart enough to sit down and think about, you know, how do we make sure we are truly representative and inclusive of all the different customers that we think we're engaging with and selling to? I don't really know what the answer to that is, but I certainly recommend that businesses think long and hard about making sure they, they, they have representation of all the different segments of customers that ultimately they're going to be engaging with um, within their own organization. If they do that, then they can be better placed to make the right decisions. When it comes to the second part of ROI um, in terms of return on involvement, it, it's not rocket science for me. I think that, again, it comes back to the fact that historically consumer-facing businesses 
are pretty good at customer acquisition. We're pretty good at bringing people in the door. We focus far too much on that and not enough on making sure people come back. So when I'm talking to a business, I will, I'll always say to them, you know, what would it take to turn a customer into a fan? And I genuinely believe that it doesn't matter what you sell. You could sell widgets, you could sell washers, you could sell washing machine parts, you could sell tumble dryers, you could sell cars, you can sell financial services, you can sell food and beverage, doesn't matter. Every single business can start the process of turning a customer into a fan. And it's actually that process whereby you think of yourself more as a customer service business that just happens to sell a retail product or just happens to sell a financial services product or just happens to sell a car or food or whatever it is. Because what happens then is you engage with customers in a, in a different way. You think about the level of service that they're looking to experience and how you make sure that you deliver a brilliant experience across all the touch points of your business and all the touch points the customer interfaces with. And that's the process of starting to turn a customer into a fan. And therefore, in my mind, if you engage with customers more frequently and you involve them more and you think about that and you put, you know, customer service at the heart of your thinking when you communicate with them, then you're going to start to build a return on involvement. Um, whereas at the moment, most businesses are insanely focused on return on advertising spend. And I get that, right? Because we can measure that. And it's really important that we have confidence that we, when we bring someone in, we know that we spend one pound on Martin, he's going to be worth 10 pounds. And therefore our ROAS is 10 to one. Brilliant. What I'm much more interested in is what's it going to take to make sure Martin comes back for the next three years? And what might the value of him be over that longer period of time? Then I can really start to focus on building lifetime value. And what am I going to have to do to involve him more, to communicate with him more effectively, to deliver better levels of service and experience and prove to him that we are a business with the right values, with the right purpose. We are diverse and inclusive and everything else that makes sure he, he keeps wanting to come back to us before going to a competitor. So we talk a lot about the customer experience. We talk about how we can improve that through you know, seamless omni-channel experiences from a digital perspective. But what else are you seeing that really makes that impact and makes that difference to the customer? Well, again, you know, I think it's too narrow to just think about, you know, omni-channel and digital, digital transformation. You know, the, these are obviously core drivers that are driving, are making our businesses more modern, more effective, and, and, and hopefully able to provide the level of convenience that customers are looking for. But I really think it's more than that. And I think that we've talked about diversity and inclusion. Just some other things I'd be thinking about. I mean, obviously the environment and sustainability, massively top of mind for consumers. And I think any business that thinks that this is something they can worry about in 10 years time or five years time, you know, brands that say, we'll be sustainable by 2040. We will have, you know, fully compostable, composable, compostable packaging by, you know, 2035. In my mind, is kicking the can down the road because they haven't taken the time and, the, and, and really thought through what are the steps they could take now. And even although it might take 10 years to become fully sustainable, I think it's really important that brands prove to consumers that are on that journey and where they are on that journey. Because as consumers, we all are now becoming more conscious in our consumption. We all have a degree of guilt about what we buy, from whom we buy it, and what the impact of that is on the environment and what that means for our children and our children's children. And 
you know, I mean, one sector that's going to experience that more than any is fast fashion. And, you know, I think there is a risk that consumer facing brands think that, that consumers say one thing and do another. Well, if you just need to look at the car industry, the car industry has been caught out by the adoption of electric vehicles. We are already at a level in 2022 that the car industry thought was going to take us until 2030 to reach in terms of the percentage of consumers that are buying and driving electric vehicles. So they have been caught out by that. And I think the same is going to happen in fast fashion and other sectors if they don't get their act together. So I think that's really important. I suppose the final thing to add would be... Sorry, please. Sorry, Marcia. I was just going to say, because you made a good good point there and I just want to follow up on that. You you talked earlier about the fact that COVID was proof that people, when they need to get their act together, they can, you know, when they, because when it's affecting their business, they get their act together quickly over a mat. You saw a huge acceleration of so many different services and products over that, that 18 month or two year period. Why aren't people doing the same for sustainability, for the environment? We are seeing the same level of emergency, albeit as you say, happening probably somewhere else in the world at the moment and not really impacting our customer and not really impacting us. But the emergency is just, just as strong and, and we've proven we can do it. So why aren't we doing it again? T- totally agree. I think, I think one of the challenges for boards that are running businesses, right, there, there's so much pressure, obviously. It's easy for me to say on, you know, on the outside looking in, albeit I am on a number of boards, but, you know, there's always so many things to have to wrestle with and of course there's probably never been a more challenging time for the majority of consumer facing businesses than where we are today because we had to pivot during the pandemic we've come out of that we've got you know the environment we've got diversity and inclusion we've got all these things that we are that we kind of know we have to do something around as something about and again some of that might just come back to the construct of those boards and those executive leadership teams and maybe not having the right people on there that, that really understand this stuff and understand the importance of it, right? And are able to champion, if you, if you like, the requirement to do something about it quicker and what the implications of that are for customers. Some of that might just come back to not listening enough to customers and not providing customers with a voice because if you did and if you do, then I think you'll be left in no doubt about the level of importance that they place upon the environment and what a brand is doing to prove that it's not just talking it, but it's walking the talk and it's mm-hmm. actually changing and it's transforming itself in order to, you know, reflect across the supply chain, the products and services and how it does business, that it takes the stuff seriously and it's doing something about it. So I think there's a number of, there's a number of kind of causes and effects, if you like, but it's clearly never been more important. I'll, I'll give you a quick example of a business that, that's always done a great job of, or not always, but has in the last eight or nine years done a great job of listening to its customers. A good friend of mine is a guy called Mike Logue, who until about nine months ago ran Dreams, the bed and bedding and mattress retailer. When he and the private equity company that bought the business took it over in 2013, they were losing 50, 60 million pounds a year. Basically over a five, six year period, they turned that around they were making 50, 60 million pounds a year, even when their stores were closed at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and they sold the business for 600 million pounds or thereabouts about a year ago. But ultimately, the, at the heart of that successful transformation was listening to customers. And, you know, Mike spent his first, his first six weeks in his stores talking to every single colleague and talking to as many customers as he could 
because he knew that that was the best way of getting under the skin of what was broken and what was wrong with the business and what they needed to do to fix it. And one of the things that he did subsequently off the back of that is he put in place a listening program called Pillow Talk. And so encouraging customers to come on, fill out a survey. This takes about half an hour to do. I've done it myself. So it's a decent commitment of time and effort. But consumers are prepared to do it. I mean, they do They do have a, a you know, I think every so many customers get, get um, can win a prize. But it's not about the prize. It's about the fact that they're listening to customers and they're proving they're doing something with the information that they're getting back. And the whole thinking behind this is that Mike doesn't didn't feel comfortable starting meetings on the business like this, sticking our finger in the air when, when we talk about what's happening in the business and why is it happening. He wanted to make better informed decisions to take the, the subjectivity out of the decision-making process and being able to turn insight generated from consumers who are telling the business about what was working, what they liked, what they didn't like, right down to levels of service at the store and the contact center, the product, delivery, the people that were coming in and then, you know, bringing in the mattress, taking away the old one and so on and so forth. And and all of that became the decision-making or, or became the insight, if you like, that helped them to make much better decisions. So when they're having their business meetings now within the organization, um, they're very much driven by insight, by data, but more importantly, by insight that can help them make the right decisions for our customers. So I think there's a great example of you know, what a business can do to get closer to customers, to listen to customers and to do a better job of serving them. Yeah, great insights and great, great example there. And when you were talking about the sustainability thing and proving that you're actually doing something about it, the other obvious example that springs to mind is, is Patagonia. But then there's also that question, isn't there? You know, the huge announcement from Patagonia, what, three months ago now. How do you, how do you make sure that that's a genuine thing and not just, not just a, a brilliant PR stunt? Because people can see through those things. It needs to feel genuine, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's got to be a core part of the DNA. I mean, Patagonia is absolutely the best example globally, probably. I think you find it hard to find a brand that's done a better job of walking the talk for the entirety of that business. And again, but that comes from the owner. That comes or comes from the founder of the business and his DNA, yeah. his outlook. I mean, you go on the Patagonia website today, as you would have done for the last 10 years or more, and there's a tab on there for activism. And, and, and it tells you all the different causes that Patagonia as a brand is supporting and, and why they're supporting them and what they're doing about it. You know, I've been on that website hundreds of times and I can't tell you how many times I've gone on there and they've actually not had, it's not been a homepage where they've been promoting products. You know, there's been a video, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. about talking about the Guchin, uh, the Guchin, easy, easy for you to say, maybe not for me, um, the indigenous population in Alaska whose environment and habitat was being destroyed by companies come in, coming in and drilling for oil and gas. Now, that was a political decision made by the last government in the States, since been reversed by the current government. But, you know, this was... It's says very real, these people's livelihoods, their whole future was put at risk by a commercial decision that had nothing to do, you know, with the environment. And you go onto the homepage of the website and there's a video all about this, or there's a video about the impact on our oceans of plastic or whatever it is. So this is a, this is a business that walks the talk. 
Um, Black, they, they donated their $10 million of sales from Black Friday 2021. Every single cent and every single dollar they donated to a climate-related entity. And, and since, as you said, a few months ago, they basically made the, the, the founder made the decision to essentially give the business to chart a number of charitable causes. So, you know, you can't you can't you can't um, prove that you care about this stuff any more than that, right? You can't walk the talk yeah. anymore than than what they. And it goes back to exactly what you're talking about around fans. Like, I am a fan of Patagonia for exactly those reasons. I really am a fan of them. And if it was a you know, if I needed to buy a fleece or a jacket, I'd go to Patagonia. Not just because of what they care about and how they are walking the talk but also things that they're offering which are really interesting and I know others that are offering them now like uh, lifetime guarantee free repairs so if you know if you get a, yeah. a cut in your jacket send it back they'll repair it for free like that is a really important yeah. messages it's massive it's massive I remember, I remember one of their best advertising one of the best advertising campaigns of all time was uh, the headline was don't buy this jacket <laughs> and then it yes, talks yes, about yeah. repairing, reusing, repurposing, recycling, all the things you could do and all the things they could do, you know, to support you in that initiative. Um, and there, there is a very important message in that, and it's absolutely not a gimmick. And so I don't think it takes a great stretch of imagination to imagine what it feels like to work for a brand like that and how they treat, because you just know, and I do know that that is one part of what they do really well how they treat their colleagues. You know, they have on-site childcare facilities wherever they have an office. Um, they're encouraging their colleagues to go and um, surf when the waves are good, even during work hours. You know, they've created a brand and created an environment that very much right end-to-end reflects their values and the values of the founder of the business and what they stand for. And I think that their purpose and their values are the beacon that shines through in everything that they do. And that's why people like you and I see them in a very different way. And we have an emotional connection with them. We don't have a transactional relationship. And that's the, you know, unfortunately for most brands, it's all about the transaction. And that's how customers feel. Whereas with Patagonia, there is an emotive connection with the brand very much first and foremost, which is why you and I will think first about them when it comes to yeah. buying that fleece or buying that ski jacket or whatever it happens to be. I love that. I love that tie back because we often talk about in marketing, creating the emotional connection, making people feel something. We talk about raising heartbeats, you know, really making people connect on an emotional level. And then a lot of the other work that's happened within retail and the digital transformation of retail over the over the last couple of years has been around making that transaction seamless, making it easy, making it quick, helping you find product, having brilliant product information, the and, you know everything to do with supply chain and delivery, the full end-to-end experience of retail. We have looked at that. But what you're talking about here is that emotional connection. And when we make something seamless and easy and quick and enjoyable as an experience, because you don't have to think much about it, you're actually missing some opportunities to create that emotional connection. And I guess that's where we talk about in-store experience and how some brands are now changing the concept of their physical real estate. So making those more experiential, making, uh, you know, stores a destination rather than a transaction site. But what else yeah. are you seeing? How can brands in this digital world of ours, where it's all about seamless and quick and fast and easy, find opportunities to make that emotional connection? 
Sure. Well, again, I think it's about, you know, seeing yourself slightly differently in what your role is. I mean, if you if you think that your role is simply to, you know, provide products that people want to buy or services that people want to engage with, that's probably, in my opinion, not going to be enough and not necessarily going to be sustainable over the long term. Now, I'll give you an example. AO.com, previously appliances online, you know, again, looking at a brand that from end to end, thinks about what does it mean to be customer centric and how do we really deliver that? So when they're bringing people into the business, they're looking for people who are both humble and ambitious because they believe that what that brings is the the, the, hum, the humbleness brings humility. Humility means that, you know, generally if, if you're, if you are humble and you demonstrate humility, um, I think that lends itself to better collaboration with your colleagues. It lends itself to better levels of service when it comes to dealing with customers. But then you also want people that are ambitious. You want people who always want to improve themselves, always want to do better for the business, want to do better for customers. So they feel that that brings them the right the right um, attributes in someone that means they're going to be a good fit for the business. But then right the way through to the last mile, when they're installing a fridge freezer, a washing machine or a tumble dryer, you know, if you look at any business that distributes products whether it's satellite dishes or whatever it is, to a customer, 99 times out of 100, the people that do those installations are being measured by one thing. They've got one KPI they have to meet every day, and that is how many installations did they do in a day. And the problem with that is that when you focus somebody on speed and volume, they make mistakes because they cut corners. And, you know, whether that's bringing something in and not wearing the you know, the plastic covering on their shoes because they think it's going to take them, you know, it's going to take an extra couple of minutes to do that and they get dirt on the customer's carpet or they don't really care when they're trying to squeeze that washing machine into other existing appliances. This this is so true, Martin. And I have a perfect example of this because we've just done up our bathroom, we've got a new bathroom and the people delivered a bath and they didn't bring it inside. It was pavement delivery and it was in a pallet. So they just left this bath on my door, like on a road. I live in a terraced house. So it's just on a road, this bath. And I was like, can you not bring it inside? And they were like, no, it's just I'm like, why can't, like, I can't lift this. I'm on my, how, how on earth am I supposed to get that this bath inside? And they said, shocking. it's shocking, isn't it? But they said the reason was since it was since COVID and they were using COVID as an excuse to not, enter people's houses okay I understand that but the reality was is realizing that they weren't carrying products into houses was saving them time which meant they could make more deliveries during a day and that was I will never buy from that company again exactly well there you go there you go right that's short-termism versus lifetime value and that's because guaranteed that's what they're being measured by they're being measured by how many baths did you deliver today exactly whereby if they were being measured by customer satisfaction right? Then you and I both know their behavior would have been entirely different. They would have brought it in no matter what, right? Um, even if it had been right in the middle of lockdown, I'm pretty confident they'd have put their masks on and they would have brought they would have brought the bath in for you. I mean, that's just ridiculous, but that's my <laughs> point. And, and so the, the people that are installing fridge freezers and tumble dryers and washing machines and TVs who are working at AO.com, they're only measured by customer satisfaction. That's it. They'll phone up a customer, you know, they'll phone you up and say, we'll be there in half an hour, just checking that's that's still convenient for you. Oh, I'm really sorry, I'm 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 shopping at Sainsbury's. Oh, no problem. 
we'll, or, we'll, we'll sort you out a taxi or, you know, you sort yourself out a taxi and we'll cover the taxi bill or whatever it takes to get back on time. If that's going to work, if you can be back in, you know, by 11 o'clock or whatever it happens to be. So again, <clears throat> end to end, it's a business that understands its purpose, understands its role, understands what it needs to do to deliver the optimum experience for customers. But I think brands that do that really well, I'll, can I just give you one quick, other quick example. Um, they, they also think through not just what does it mean to deliver a great experience, but how do we handle things when they go wrong? And that's too often what businesses don't think through. So for example, I had the privilege of being flown to do a, a presentation in Hong Kong a few years ago. I was put up in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. Incredible, I'd never stayed in a, in a, in a hotel like this before. Long story short, I was trying to uh, get the TV working. I was going out for dinner. I'd had a shower. I'm standing there. I'm thinking maybe it's just me and technology and this remote control, you know, are not compatible. But I told them on the way out and I came back and there was a letter, a printed letter on Mandarin Oriental head of paper on my bed saying, Dear Mr. Newman, really sorry about what happened. This is what happened. There was a problem. We fixed it. And by the way, here's my contact details in case anything else goes wrong. And I tell this story because when I when I was checking in, they took me to the room and showed me how everything worked. When there was a problem, this is how they dealt with it. When I was leaving, the concierge, the bellboy that picked up my luggage, the reception desk, they all said to me, they all said to me, Mr. Newman, you've got your passport, haven't you? And you haven't left anything in your, any valuables in your safe. And I realized that it was a business that had thought through every touch point and every eventuality. What does good look like? And how do we deal with the bad? But that also comes down, that comes down to the culture of the business. It comes down to how people are measured and it comes down to empowerment. People have said to me over the years, ah, that's a high-end hotel charging, you know, hundreds of pounds a night for a room so they can afford to spend the time, you know, pr printing a letter or whatever. That's BS. That's about somebody taking the initiative. It took five minutes to do that. Five minutes to type the letter, five minutes to take it to my room, Right. And it made all the difference. And look how many people, I've, I've told tens of thousands of people probably now in the last five or six years, that story, you know. So I think it's all about it's all about mindset and it's all about culture. And I think you, if you get all of that right, you can make such a difference for customers and for the performance of the business. Do you know what it also feels like, Martin, whilst you're talking? It also feels like a return to how businesses used to be. And, you know, the village, again, this maybe is a British thing, but the village shop mentality, you went in and they knew you by name and they got you whatever you needed. And the service was always brilliant and it was personal. And is this just a case of we're, make, we're realizing that losing that human connection, losing that human touch is lacking? I think Go on. I think it's a really important point and it's a great point. And, and I, I believe passionately that the, that the answer to that is yes. And I think that when you look at businesses of any scale, what's happened is they've scaled their business and they've created these head office environments in the vertical commas, is they've taken all, they've taken really away all the control from the stores. So in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, whether it's a retail business or a food and beverage, but you know, a restaurant doesn't matter. In most cases, all the decisions are being made by the head office. The head office dictates what is sold in these stores at a local level. The head office dictates pricing. The head office dictates merchandising, how the, how the products are displayed. The head office dictates levels of service. The head office drives marketing. Let's look at a business like Timson. 
family business, third or fourth generation, you know, the opposite. Every single person that works on the front line of their business, no matter whether they've been there for a day, for a week, for a month, or for a year, or for 10 years, they're all empowered to make decisions there and then. They do not have to go up the chain of command. They can discount, they can change prices, they can create new promotions, they can give compensation back to customers of up to £500 if your Manolo Balanics have been ruined when they were rehealing them or whatever. It's all about trust and empowerment. Now imagine how that makes those people feel about working in that environment. They love it, which is why they don't leave, but which is also why they deliver great levels of service for customers because they're empowered to make decisions there and then. The opposite is true in 99% of other retail businesses. You contact them, you've got a problem or whatever, you know, there's no, they have no ability at the local level, no empowerment, not ability, no empowerment at the local level or authorization to do any of that, right? And so that means as customers, we, we end up having a very bland, very homogenous and quite often disappointing experience when we go into these big national chains. So I think there's a real opportunity for them to think about how do they change that? How do they get back to the way it used to be? How do they adopt the Timson model? And I think a lot of it comes back to fear. You know, lots of businesses are very clever, very good at knowing, you know, I open a new store, I do this or I do that. I know what my ROI is going to be. And I know that if I do all these things in the next year, I'm pretty confident I'm going to make a certain level of profitability. Now, that's maybe not, not as easy to do these days as it was maybe, you know, a few years ago. But I still think there's a fear there about what would happen if we actually trusted our staff to make these decisions? What would happen if we gave them the ability to offer the customer a discount? Home Depot in North America enabled their staff to discount up to $50. Now, why is that? They do that because they don't want you or I walking out and going buying, a, I call it a newfangled video door camera or something like that, you know, a higher ticket item from Best Buy or a competitor. So you're allowed to use your discretion. If you think it's going to make the difference between converting a sale or somebody walking out the shop, you're empowered to do that. But, you know, that has so many benefits. It has benefits for the customer. It has benefits for the colleague because they're trusted. And, of course, they stay longer in these businesses because it has a culture of trust and empowerment. So the, everything I'm talking about and everything we've talked about now, you know, they all, they all have a ripple effect. There's cross-pollination. They're all connected in some shape or form, if that makes sense. It does. And I think all of what you're talking about comes down to just care and building relationships. Building a relationship with the customer, that means more than the purchase itself. So yeah, it's it's been so interesting to talk to you, Martin. And I think we could talk and talk and talk, but I'm conscious of time. So we are going to have to wrap it up. But thank you so much for joining us today to talk about all of that. Amazing points and insights and definitely shifts the opinion of all the, you know, the thought process of how we should go about um, thinking about, particularly in these economically difficult times that long-term value that it really, really matters to care and to put the customer first. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the latest transformation series from Valtech Cafe. Hit subscribe to get access to our whole back catalogue of conversations. And if you'd like to know more about what we do, why not visit us at valtech.com for all the details. Until next time, thanks for listening.